Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. We really appreciate you taking time to join us for another edition of Midrats. And if you are with us live... Uh, you can go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you will find a link to the chat room. We'll be monitoring it during the course of today's show. And like we do in all of our uh, melee and free-for-all formats, uh, we want to hear your ideas, your questions, your topics you might be interested in. And the chat room is a great way to do it. We'll see it as you type it in there. And we will do our best to fold that into our conversation. We also like to... Uh, Give an extension, an invitation uh, to call in if you'd like to. Uh, up there on the show page, you will see the phone number. It is area code 347-308-8397. If you want to call and just roll the question that way, we're more than welcome to have you on board. Uh, and Eagle One, glad to have you on board for another Sunday. Hey, thank you, Sal. Glad to be here, as as always. Uh We've got some interesting stuff to talk about since the government seems to be intent on spending money on on defense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you've been around long enough, you remember the arguments from the past about you know defense budgets and everything. I I guess as we put in the advertisements, one of the things we'll kick off because I know it generated a fair bit of conversation in the in the national security arena last week, the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA 2022 that you know gets everybody excited inside the beltway but it matters it actually went out there and uh, the the top line number for those that are tracking such it's, it's hard to get your mind around it 858 billion dollars uh, we're just a few years in inflation away from pretty soon we're going to have a one trillion dollar defense budget but that buys that buys a lot um, and you know, part of that is, is personnel, and I don't know what it's going to take. And a lot of the NDA is aimed towards the challenge in the Pacific. And uh, as everybody, everybody knows, you don't get involved in a land war in Asia. But um, the Army is still the largest service uh, at four at four hundred and fifty-two thousand uh, in strength personnel. The Navy at three hundred and fifty-four in the Air Force at 325. Uh, I guess the Navy can say the Marine Corps is part of this too, though they get itchy about that. But they're holding the Marine Corps steady at 177,000. Um, what I'll do is in a minute here, I'll go put a link to those that are with us live in the chat room. There's a nice summary that the uh, the Senate put out that uh, its summary is about 16 pages. Because I think this document itself, what, you, you need a small pickup truck to carry, off, carry it once it's published? 
Well, I, I'm sure everybody has read 4,000 plus pages of this thing, including all our senators and congressmen who uh, voted for it. So we probably don't need to discuss much since everybody's already got it memorized. Yeah. I know there are some interesting items hidden in there. I need to get hold of the full thing and um, do a do a word search. The summaries are important, though, because if you ever actually read the bill itself, it's written in some variation of the English language in a format that all bills coming out of Congress are. But, yeah, there, there's no way that, that informed people are going to be able to read it. They're just going to have to look at their staff and ask them, what do I need to know about this document? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the summaries done by both the Senate and the House uh, do suggest – uh, the important, most important aspects, but it also leaves out some of the stuff that you, that some of us might miss by, by not reading the entire document. And fortunately for us, everybody's got a little um, hobby horse <laughs> when they read. A, somebody's got these these hobby horses they want to read when they, uh, when they uh, are looking through this thing. So you know they've decided that in case of of somewhere in this NDAA is a thing that in case in, in matters of sexual harassment, uh, they're going to be an independent investigator outside the chain of command. And that if there's, if there are courts martial involved, or, uh, then the, the boards will be randomly selected. So, uh, you know, little, little things like that appeal to someone, and you go, well, that really isn't a... Uh, a funding thing is it but you know it's how it's how these bits and pieces get added to our um, rules and regulations for operating and, and you know there are a few things in there that um, make sense come in alignment with some of the other things that we've heard people say that we've read that have been put in the strategy you're right there are those items it's that whole issue has been a few people's hobby horses, and they 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 got what they wanted um, out of it. We'll see how that operationalizes. But uh, there's also some stuff in there that when you read it, you wonder um, we we didn't already do that. Uh, there's a couple things uh, in personnel policy. The one thing that we've already heard a lot of gnashing of teeth and rending of clothes over because it's become such a hyper political and emotional issue for people. Um, but they uh, they rescinded the mandate that all members of the armed forces be vaccinated against COVID-19, which uh, some of the listeners may have seen that um, very brave midshipman who, you know, say, oh, anybody has any questions? And he asked about it and was told to come talk to him in private. So maybe that will help some of those people that uh, have some concerns, and, and some of them are, are based on – religious beliefs that's a complicated subject but that i don't think that'll solve the argument but it might help take away one of the negatives for retention and recruiting and they also have in there under uh, military health care quote requires a review and report on the rates of suicide in the armed forces by military occupational specialty during a time period beginning after september 11th uh, 2001 and continuing to the present day, broken down by military operational specialty service and grade, unquote. You know, we haven't talked about it much on, on MidRats. It's just come up once or twice, I think, because it's, it's an unpleasant topic. But, you know, suicide in the military, this has been, especially in the 
last 15 years has been a regular topic of concern. Um, and of course, we have a huge medical bureaucracy in the Navy and in, in the DOD. And I read that, I'm going, that sounds like a pretty basic thing. We're not doing that already? Uh, I found it, it's nice that it's finally being done because then we can have some informed conversations with hopefully some valid metrics. But that's almost like uh, any uh, – we, we hire people who have masters in public health to go in our, our medical corps. Any of those people could – that's just basic statistics and acquiring data. So that – I wonder how many other things like that are hidden in there that people assume would have already been done. But, you know, it takes 15 years to do what you think would be common knowledge. Yeah, it's, it's – uh... You know, everybody's expressed concern about it over the years, and and I think I thought there'd been a number of studies available. I haven't looked at them all, but I know there's some out there on on maybe not by rate, rank, and location, but uh, or military occupational specialty. But you know, it's I'm sure they, um, from what I recall off the top of my head, and I could be wrong on this, that most of these things they're not they're not your older people. It's it's young people who are. Uh, facing these issues. Yeah, I, I think that it'll be useful because a lot of what you hear is um, anecdotal, emotion-based, and people make certain assumptions. But the, you know, is it really correlated um, with deployment time, years of service, or um, combat elements have a higher rate than support elements? You know, what is what is the connection here? And a, and a good statistician could probably um, pull some numbers out of that. So it would be good that maybe we can uh, get rid of a little bit of, of mythology or false impressions and actually find out what what are the common, if there are any common drivers to that. Because uh, you know, suicide rates in the civilian world also vary a lot amongst populations and occupation specialties, so it's it'll be able to I think to, to better address the problem um, as opposed to just uh, emoting about it, or worse, doing things that are either counterproductive or aren't directed towards areas that can actually help. So better late than never. Um, I know people have have studied it, but I just I just found that a little little shocking that something that that basic just had never been done. Yeah, it's interesting. I know years ago I read a study from the French Foreign Legion, of all places, about suicide rates, and they found that the, the highest rate was when um, among combat troopers who had suddenly gone back into garrison, uh, for what, whatever that's worth. So it would be interesting to see how that holds up uh, with the U.S. But, you know, suicide rates among young people during the period of COVID are also up, uh, civilian and or uh, military, I assume. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think there's a whole lot of information that needs to be digested. I think uh, some of the other good stuff that came out of this, and I think uh, our friend Stephen Wagstaff notes this in our chat room, you know, long-term multi-year procurement contracts for certain key munitions. And, you know, when you go through the list of the of the things that we're going to buy, 2,600 Harpoon missiles, uh, I mean, it's a long list, 28,000 Javelin missiles, uh, 864,000. I don't know where they came up with these numbers, but 864,000 rounds of, of uh, 155 uh, ammo. I mean, it's it used 700 HIMAR launchers. Uh, it's 
106,000 uh, MLRS rounds. I mean, that's uh, it's, somebody did some homework on this and and uh, got it put into uh, got it put into uh, a procurement part of the NDAA, which I, I think is, is very good. Yeah, as we've we've discussed here, and, and everybody is noticing from the Russia-Ukrainian war is. And so, something we've talked with lots of guests about in the past is if, if you have your stockpiles based upon short wars, and if that war isn't short, um, you know, we're the lender of last resort when it comes to weapons, but so nobody's going to be able to give us anything. We've got to have it internally. And there are a couple of indications here that um, some, especially since the Cold War, a couple of areas in the Navy that have been neglected with both attention and money and a few of the people in this field will say and in promotion. But, um, for instance, they have uh, an increase of $405.5 million for urgent enhancements of naval mining and delivery capabilities. Um, you just that, Again, that was one of those things that, especially in the early part of the Russia-Ukraine war, everybody woke up again uh, to the importance of mining. They're also going to uh, require a briefing on existing requirements and capabilities for offensive and defensive mining, as well as potential capability and production capacity improvements. Uh, so that you know, they have the mining portion and the anti-submarine warfare. Uh, in addition to all the other weapons they're buying, they're going to uh, pony up an extra 125.4 million to buy 200 additional Mark 54 torpedoes, uh, which when you talk to the uh, anti-submarine warfare guys, they, they get a little bit of flop sweat when they run through some of their scenarios about uh, uh, utilization. So nice to see that we're, we're buying those areas that maybe have been um, neglected for higher profile areas over the, the past that, that you know, any any armchair admiral can look at the Western Pacific and know that uh, – Anti-submarine warfare, especially with what the Chinese are building and have built in the last decade, and of course mine warfare, it's it's going to be a player, and we're going to need it. So that additional funding, and you see a lot of that in here, and I think later on we might talk about some of the things the SecNav said at Columbia recently. But you have um, there's a reason for optimism, which is I think in the title to the today's show I put in, you know, glad tidings for the season. You, know, you have to watch out for where things follow, but um, as we've we've seen a lot, if people are talking about things and starting to put money towards it, that's that's a good sign. What's worrisome is things that we know that are important, but they they don't get mentioned anywhere. So I I found that nice uh, to see that uh, we're going to get a little bit of loving for the mine warfare and uh, some of our ISW uh, weaponry needs. Yeah, I think that's really important, and I think that, I mean, if you look at this, you know, they're 25, I don't know what a ship to shore connector is anymore, but let's assume they want 25 of those and 15, and they're, you know, they're, they're blocked by and multi-year contracts for, for 15 more Burke-class destroyers, eight Lewis-class oilers, five amphibious ships, uh, uh, CH-53 uh, Kilo helicopters, uh, you know, 11 battle force ships, three Arleigh Burke class. I mean, that's, this is for right away stuff, I think. Two more Virginia class subs, uh, two expeditionary fast transports, 
the first Constellation class frigate, and I think that's the one that they're. I, I don't think that. I think the second one is going to have the SM6 uh, system available on it, and you know, and a salvage and rescue ship. The, the when we, when we when you read the, the Secretary of Navy's speech, which I liked a lot because I, it reflected, I think, his experience as a surface warfare guy. Uh, I kept looking in there, going, "Well, he's he's got he's got the stuff right," and I'm. Uh, I think my comment at the time was, "Let's talk tenders," because you can't you can't yep. do some of the things that he described unless you have some asset out there that's capable of uh, of rearming the ships that can't rearm themselves, uh, loading those, refilling those missile tubes, uh, and missile boxes, whatever you want to call them, and. Uh, and then doing repairs on 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 scene. So uh, I I didn't see that as part of this NDAA, but you got to think that somewhere in there there's somebody's somebody at his office is thinking where can we where can we get the money to do to do that kind of thing. Yeah, my apologies if my rustling paper is coming through the microphone, but I, I highlighted here. Here we go. There's a couple. We we can bounce back and forth while you mentioned the speech. I actually wrote in the margins of his speech, <laughs> in, in, in honor of my co-host, tenders with an exclamation point. Here's here's the part that that's what jumped out at me. I was like, okay, here's an opening for a conversation, because you you and uh, there's some other things in speech we can talk about later. But to specifically, and I'll, I'm going to quote the SecNav from his speech up in Columbia in, in the chat room. When I get through with the quote, I'll go in and uh, copy the speech for folks that haven't read it yet. But quote. We know that in a high-end naval conflict with a peer competitor, we will need to repair and even revive ships at tremendous speed. And we'll need to do so close to the fight as possible so that even damaged ships can return to battle quickly. The intense repair and revive demands of a high-end conflict in Asia will require significant shipyard capability in the Pacific. Accordingly, we are testing our wartime assumptions and looking for opportunities to expand our public shipyard capacity at home and abroad, unquote. That screams floating dry docks that are that can move. That screams to me tenders. That screams to me uh, additional facilities that are located in places other than just Guam. So I, I, that, I think that's a, a great opening for people to um, you know, put that on a banner and said the, the SECNAV said this. Now let's talk about it. So that was good to see. Yeah, I think that's that's good. I, I, I mean, you could you could go over. I, I'm confused by some things that are in here. Uh, I'm, I was pleased to see that there's some plus up for the uh, Pacific Deterrence Initiative uh, funding. Uh, and, but the, can you explain this one to me? To <laughs> the NDAA is going to force the DoD to establish a joint force headquarters in the Pacific. I thought we had a joint force headquarters in the Pacific there at. at in Hawaii at PACCOM. Am I missing something here, or do you think that means in the Western Pacific? I, I, I mean, I I have no idea what they're calling And I have a little bee in my bonnet, too. Uh, in the civilian world and in industry and governments, um, trying to get a flatter organization, but a lot of this stuff, uh, and that's one of them, we're just growing more staffs and more bureaucracies. I don't know what they want to build that doesn't already exist in Hawaii, in Japan, 
I mean, are they going to put uh, a joint headquarters in, in Darwin? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, they're not going to put one in the Philippines. Um, the Vietnamese aren't going to invite us to come back to Saigon. Uh, I don't know where, where are they going to put it. And the last thing we need is another big building inside of multiple range rings of the enemy's rocket artillery. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know how they're going to operationalize that. And another thing that they're doing, growing the bureaucracy, is uh, they're going to increase the number of assistant secretaries of defense to 19 and the number of deputy assistant secretaries of defense to 60 and create a new assistant secretary of defense specifically for cyber policy. So we're creating lots of, of staff jobs, but I, I would love to see the Manning documents, where they're, where they're getting those billets from. Are they going to recapture them from existing staffs? Are they going to restructure the staff? Or are we just uh, creating a more complicated C2 diagram? I, I, I couldn't find more information. Yeah, you know, they, they do talk a lot about cyber stuff in there. There was, there was, uh, they're mad at the Navy for not having its own separate cyber, uh, occupational specialty for cyber stuff. Um, I don't <laughs> I think it's important enough. Uh, and they also are looking for spyware companies that, you know, they were, they're trying to slap that down. And so there, there's a, supposed to be some kind of uh, new system in, put in place to fight back with these uh, spyware agencies. You know, first thing they should do is just kill TikTok and anything else that the, is run by the Chinese government. That would solve a lot of the issues. Um, and, and, you know, then there's some other stuff in there. You go, well, I, I think, uh, once again, the, uh, the question was, you know, they want to have – uh, non-tactical vehicles become all electric or non or alter, alter, alternatively fueled by 2030 and I'm you know I, I guess we're all going to drive no. golf carts around <laughs> you have to I, golf carts maybe, for everyone well and, and here's here's the the dirty non-secret about everything electrical and I I drive a bloody hybrid so I'm guilty par- partly too whether you're talking about a lot of those minerals or the equipment itself, it, it, you can't make them without China. So and alternative fuels, are you talking about hydrogen? Um, are you talking about LNG? So uh, the military is going to have to diversify their, their POL capability here. It's, it's forcing, it's forcing um, a system on the military that really has no need, and especially when you deal with um, – Anything involving batteries or electric, uh, I got a kick. An announcement came out a few weeks ago about a similar program, and I'm going. Excuse me, uh, we just got through doing some exercises in Finland. Why don't you go up to, uh, to Finnmark or up in you know Lapland up north with the Sami and, and try to run your electric stuff when it's you know negative 20 Celsius outside? It doesn't work. Uh, it uh, so I I think this is one of those things that will die on the vine. I don't see how you get there by 2030. There are other things we need to be get spending money on by 2030. Um, having a bunch of Teslas with Department of the Navy on the side is probably not the answer. No, I I think that I think not. 
we'll just have to see how this, you know, you get your marching orders and you kind of got to do what you said, but there are people, there's always that, that uh, Nelsonian blind eye you can turn to some orders, I guess. Maybe that's one of them ought to be blind-eyed. One thing you mentioned earlier, I want to I'll back up to it for a minute because I would really love to see how uh, the shipbuilders are going to modify our modified frim because they said that um, the Constellation class frigate will have to be able to fire Keylam and SM6. Now, I don't think they're going to bring back the armored bar- box launchers. <laughs> So that means that they're going to have to find some way to shoehorn uh, Mark 41 VLS for the um, for the for the TLAM itself. SM6 uses a different uh, VLS system, I believe. So I don't know how much square footage they're going to put on there to be able to. You know, how much can you actually fit on that? I think it's some people whose whose opinion I highly value are not a big fan of it uh, because. They're just not a big fan of it. Personally, you, know, you can't say distributedly out, lethality out of out of one side of your mouth and then say we don't want the Constellation to do that as well. Uh, more VLS cells, the better. Just what do you give up to get them? Uh, I wonder it might be something the early Oliver Hazard Perry's were the shorts, and then they made a longer version uh, with uh, maybe we'll have a flight too that has the capability. It'd just be really interesting to see what type of ship bolts are going to be required to be able to shoehorn that capability that, that Congress wants in it. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know that much about, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm sitting there going, well, they could just tow them or they could uh, add those sidecar. <laughs> I can see the, uh, the, uh, the, these frigates with uh, outriggers, uh, set up with uh, with missile boxes on them somehow. I mean, I just my imagination runs wild, but I, I see I see problems with mandating something. Well, they are. We are going to be building um, Arleigh Burks till the crack of doom. It appears uh, so that that major buy, which makes sense. It's it's it works. <laughs> it gets the job done. Uh, and they they stopped decommissioning a bunch of ships, including one of the cruisers. But the the Tycos, they're they're just they're limping they're limping to the decommissioning line. So we're we're not going to have a cruiser um, anytime soon. So just Arleigh Burks will just have to step into the role. Well, I always thought Arleigh Burks, given her size and capabilities, pretty much our cruisers. So uh, yeah, you know what 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 we're doing with the frigates is bringing back destroyers. I mean, I'm uh, the size that I'm used to anyway. So, so I think the other side of this is, you know, that, that once I, I didn't see anything in there about, about, uh, replacing the PCs, uh, doing something with, with the smaller, uh, you know, the, uh, inshore Navy that we, we all know we need, uh, and so I'm a little, a little fuzzy on where that's going to come from. Cause we got all this stuff about, you know, if you're going to have a blue water fleet, this strategy, and this is where we get into the need to understand what strategy is driving these programs. If if there is one, or if we don't have one, we need to develop one in a hurry. Uh, if the strategy is to engage in the Mahanian, let's get all our big ships together and have a blowout in the middle of the ocean, that's one thing. If the strategy is we got to get close enough to, to control various straits and things, we, we need to look again at, at 
what size ships and and boats and stuff and assets we're going to put in that close and I don't see that in this particular NDAA. Yeah, I I didn't either. And I I'm glad you brought that up because that's you know, there's the the tertiary benefit of that's an opportunity for our our lieutenants and junior lieutenant commanders to get a command experience early, uh which has all sorts of benefits to the Navy writ large down the road, but when you look at the South China Sea, you know, just everybody go to your library and look at the globe or bring up a chart and draw a line from Darwin in northern Australia all the way to, to Taiwan. And everybody's watched their standard issue World War II movies from the Pacific. Uh, there's a lot of utility in small ships, inshore ships, doing a lot of good work. That you're just you're not going to you're sh- sure as hell not going to send a nuclear submarine to go do, much less a multi-billion-dollar destroyer. Uh, there's uh, that divestment, I guess, is the term of art of our small ships. Is I think in part a reaction for people don't they just want to think about the high fight on the high seas. Uh, as opposed to having a, a more balanced set of tools, because I do know that, that one thing we are bad at is we're bad at, at picking the next war and what we're going to need. And uh, we, we, if we too carefully tailor our forces, we're going to find, again, as we've discussed a few times, uh, significant capability at, uh, where we have, when we're trying to defend some of the riverine spaces in Iraq that we pretty much let the enemy own, we just were requisitioning, quote, abandoned, unquote, fishing boats and putting some Army soldiers on there with their squad automatic weapon on the bow. And that's not the optimal way to do things. So, yeah, I didn't see any of that anywhere, and I, I think that's that's unfortunate. But you you would think with $858 billion dollars, um, there might have been a, a way to, to scrape that. But I think at the end of the day, it's lack of advocacy, it's lack of support, and lack of understanding. Yeah, and, and you know, if they want to throw $100 million my way, I could give them a pretty good, a pretty good force for that, I think. But that's just me. Um, and, you know, I, I also uh, question, as you just did, the operation of our Big subs in those in those waters of the South China Sea. I know that they've been there before, but that is a uh, it's an interesting problem. And maybe we're relying, hoping on our allies with their um, small diesel boats and uh, to come in and help us out because I don't like I don't I don't like the thought of operating those waters with big ships on big submarines. Yeah. You know, those those waters are shockingly limited. Uh, it's kind of like the the Baltic Sea. Um, people see a big mass of water there, and you go, well, "That's not really a big mass of water." And by the way, uh, here's this this neat software I have that lets you shows you the bottom contour of these waters. This isn't 3,000 feet deep. Move that decimal point a few spots to the left. Uh, it's 30 to 300, and that especially when you look at how big our Virginia-class submarines are. Um, it's it's, it's the, the, the water you can go to 
the water you can if you have to go to and the water you don't want to go to, those color graphs are are impressive uh, in a way. And and that's that's true with with the big ships and um, so I, it's good that we're thinking of you know the, the high end fight against the um, what the Chinese are, are are building, but there's a lot of smaller stuff that we uh, we probably should have the ability to grab, but we're, we're not. I don't. What do we have? Another year or two until all those boats are officially gone? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, the the other thing in here, somewhere in here, I can't remember where I saw it now, but I'm sure it's in here. Is they talked about upgrading our ability to defend places like Guam and and countering the uh, working hard to counter the capabilities of of China and you know fighting against hyper sonic missiles and all that good stuff. So, you know, somebody, somebody's thinking about it, and that's the good news. The bad news is we were kind of behind the power curve, it seems to me. So, <laughs> I, I had the official – when I read this, I went, okay, some congressman asked questions and didn't get a satisfactory answer and then realized that they haven't done it. And so they, okay, fine, I'm going to put it in the NDA. I'm going to make you do it. Yeah, I think the part you're talking about, it's under the um, strategic forces missile. section under missile defense. Missile it defense, says, yeah. quote, yeah, require, <laughs> I can almost, I wanted to say exactly these words, quote, requires the designation of a senior DOD individual to be responsible for the missile defense acquisition and sustainment for Guam, requires a plan on integrated air and missile defense architecture for the defense of Guam, unquote, sounds to me like somebody was told, well, actually, we don't have anybody who's looking at that, and we don't have anything for it. And they're just looking around going, really? Okay, I guess we're going to force you to do it. That is kind of amazing that uh, um, we've, you know, the old Guam is tipping over, but it's a, it's a great piece of strategic real estate that's under the en- enemy's missile artillery, and uh, we're, we're playing a little catch-up there. That, that yeah. again, ties into what we talked about earlier with what the SECNAV said, is we need to get religion on diversity of locations and our ability to, to sustain a war because you can't put everything on Guam. Well, it, yeah, the, I, I live there. Eight miles, eight miles wide at its narrowest part, 12 miles wide at its widest, and 35 miles long. It is not a big place. And we've already got uh, a giant Air Force base on one end and a pretty big Navy base and other facilities uh, running along the, <laughs> the other parts of it. So, yeah, uh, somebody ought to be looking at – there are other islands in the in the Marianas, and I'm sure we're looking at those. But, you know, we need to look back at, at the other places we've turned into national wildlife refuges like Midway and, and Wake and – uh, some of the other places that are out there, they're a little, a little bit further away from the uh, the uh, missile envelope that we currently know about, anyway. Yeah, the the command, the executive branch is just going to have to say, hey, you know, we gave things back in the '90s, we got to take back and let let people glue themselves to paintings or whatever they're going to copy the Europeans are doing, and just just get on with it because we we need the square footage. And another thing that I saw, and again, one thing I liked about this NDAA is uh, a lot of things we've talked about. It's it's 
fun in a way to go, why did we do this years ago? But, you know, you can't do anything about the past, but you can do what you're doing right now. And people are asking the right questions. There are a lot of requirements here that I think are going to promote additional uh, focusing on areas that, that perhaps should have gotten more attention. Not getting everything that we want, but there, with COVID and then you have, I, I think, in the larger stew, we had a unique uh, view on problems uh, people have been yelling about for a long time and mostly been ignored uh, because it's hard and it's hard to think about. But between COVID and the Russia-Ukrainian war, people have realized how fragile supply chains are. And you know, like I mentioned a little bit with a snarky comment about the batteries all coming from China, but we realize that in the post-Cold War era and, and globalism, is you have really smart people with really smart commute, computers saving, you know, um, a micro cent here and a micro cent there. If we can source this raw material from this country and manufacture in that country, and we increase our bottom line by 0.04%, which in a multi-billion-dollar company is no small figure. When you look at fighting a war, there are larger supply chain issues than just. Am I going to bring this weapon in by port or am I going to bring it in by rail? It's like, can you even produce the weapon? And I, I did like the fact that um, it authorizes – see, where is – here we go. Authorizes $1 billion for the national defense stockpile to acquire strategic and critical materials required to meet the defense, industrial, and essential civilian needs of the United States – requires the National Defense Stockpile Manager to submit a briefing on strategic and critical material shortfalls and requires DOD to track the sourcing of contractor-provided rare earth elements and critical materials. Hopefully, Congress will also write it such that a commander-in-chief can't do to it what it's done to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and, and buy votes with it by releasing it. If we're going to do this, we can build weapons. And when I read that, it tied into um, – and this requires all sorts of, of nice questions uh, to be asked. It was a, a Reuters article uh, that came out in, um, on December 6th, and uh, this should have everybody's head, uh, scratching their heads a bit. And this is from the article, and it's about Germany and, and Europe, but it, it applies to that what's in the NDA as well. Quote, German let me try again. Quote, German ammunition makers at a recent defense symposium near Munich flagged that lead time for orders of cotton lintners from China, for those that don't know what it is, you need to Google it, that's L-I-N-T-E-R-S, going back to the quote, a key component for propellant charges for both small guns and artillery has tripled to up to nine months, German language daily DeWelt reported. While cotton lintners are a commodity material produced and traded across the globe, the report cited unnamed industry sources saying that all European ammunition manufacturers rely on China. That's me throwing my paper across the table. So Europe cannot manufacture um, weapons to help Ukraine because they have re now relying on China for it. So that begs the question, how many weapon systems do we have in the U.S. that also rely on materials, whether it's 
cotton lintner or it's chromium, some other object from that's either owned by a Chinese company or comes from China actual. I think that's part of what informed that part of the NDA, which again, what do you mean? We're not already doing that? About uh, that national defense stockpile so we can continue to build weapons. So I guess part of the reason is why the Europeans can't um, help out their neighbors to the east is the fact that even if they could boost up production, unless China's willing to help them, they're not able to. That's just, that's incredible that a nation's sovereign ability to supply its military is relying on a, at best, neutral to quasi-hostile power on the other side of the planet. Just amazing. Well, we we promised when we let China into the um, the World Trade Organization that uh, they would be they would reform and and join the the world and be peaceful. So, I'm sure that has drove some of that thinking, and also nobody in Germany wanted to to make cotton lintners for some good reason. So maybe they'll start a new industry and people will produce their own gun cotton or whatever you use lintners for. And, uh, you know, that'll allow them to continue to have flashless powder. But otherwise, they got a problem. You know, some other good things in this NDAA, they, this, this uh, things that we talked about before, the Legislative Branch Commission on the Future of the Navy is going to be popping in here. And I suspect there's a job for... Uh, soon to be uh, former uh, representative uh, Luria, Luria in that in that kind of commission. That would so. be a that would be a good one. And, but they also, you know, they they're going to fund the uh, maritime security and tanker security programs and authorize a tanker security program of 20 vessels uh, with 120 million dollars beginning in, of course, fiscal year. 2024, which is a little late, um, but that's good. Somebody's thinking about logistics, especially oil, which is also covered in this NDAA because with the closing down of, of the Red Hill facility on, on Hawaii, uh, they're going, well, you know, uh, you guys got to figure out what to, how are we going to get oil to our fleet out there? And so I think there's a section here that asked them to go look at that, too. I don't remember where it is, but... Um, there is that. It's not just oil, and I think, uh, and again, going back to the SECNAV speech at Columbia, everybody should buy a beer to his speechwriter and the guidance that he gave to him, because there's lots of tie-ins there. And uh, you know, we could say that the the SECNAV listens to Midrash, but not really. Um, it was a, a line in that speech that uh, it just. It's nice to see because, again, it's actionable. And I'm going to quote the SECNAV here. Quote, we must first accelerate our efforts towards fleet, endurance, and resilience required to prevail in a high-end maritime conflict of any scope and duration by ensuring the necessary capability to refuel, rearm, resupply, repair, and revive, all while being contested by an able adversary, dot, 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 including the capability to rearm our warships at sea, unquote. I mean, that's just, that's just sweet gravy on a biscuit right there to, to hear that, because, of course, we're going to have to do that, and we really don't have that ability to do it right now. Um, 
of course, how does the money fall? How does the direction go? We'll see how that follows. But that's a pretty good thing to point to for people, uh, and we've all heard and, and read them, who downplay that requirement. The fact that the, the SECNAV has put that in his speech, I think, is a, is a significant point that may help facilitate some action in that area that, again, you know, we've talked about with, with some really smart people over the years, and it seems like that's finally filtered up to the SECNAV level. So good on his team for putting that in there. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's excellent. Um, but, we, you know, I want to go back to this lender thing, because one of the things this NDAA does in the, under this section of – this is – I'm looking at the uh, House version of the summary. Um, there's a section in there that talks about expanding the authority of the National Defense Stockpile Manager to address shortfalls and authorizes more than a billion dollars for national defense stockpile transaction fund acquisition of strategic and critical materials. Uh, I don't know if you've been following some of these people on on, on uh, Twitter who are kind of experts in what it takes to actually have like all electric cars and the, and the amount of mining of lithium yeah. and other metals and stuff like that that are, that are vital. But, uh, you know, we have a whole lot of stuff in our, in our, um, system that, that is not readily findable on in our country. Now, it may be findable somewhere in the Western Hemisphere, uh, but, you know, we have to we have to keep track of, of what we would really need. I know we have this stockpile manager, because I remember talking about it when I was getting my master's degree about 8 million years ago, but, uh, you know, I, I, 1 billion seems a little low <laughs> to me for the kind of materials we're talking about. Uh, but, who knows? That That's a down payment. But I think that's part of that resiliency. And it's not just something that we're going to have to do. Um, I saw uh, an interesting breakdown, breakdown, breakout, whatever, uh, a couple of weeks ago for the Iranian uh, tactical drones that they've given to the Russians that the Ukrainians have shot down. And then Ukrainians and certain friends who speak English uh, had a chance to pick around and look at it. And so many components on there were actually sourced from the U.S. Uh, they managed to get around sanctions. And that, that, that is quite the limiting element when, you know, when you have low rates of production enough that if you're not at war, you can have all these assets. But if you're expending in the course of a week your annual production, and you don't have a very deep um, magazine to draw on, as uh, the the CEO of Raytheon uh, gave a really interesting speech, um, at the, I think it was at the end of November or the first week in December, one of the two, uh, and I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's going to take a decade for some of these weapon systems for us to be able to replenish them, simply because we don't have the... Uh, some of them we're not even making anymore. We'd have to restart production and also have to redesign them because a lot of these systems, I think Stinger is one of them, uh, we couldn't restart production because some of the components are just no longer manufactured. They're obsolete. Are they? Uh, you would have to recreate an entire manufacturing facility. Uh, so there's there's a a couple of smart people, I hope, that the military is sending some, some of our top uh, graduate schools and manufacturing materials and logistics that are going to to look into those challenges. Uh, 
because um, it you know in World War II, I know the in the early part of the U-boat campaign, a lot of the bauxite for making aluminum was coming from South America, and they right around um, there's a there's a great book called uh, U-boats of the Caribbean, and they were talking about uh, all the surface of the ocean over near Trinidad was turning, I think it's red is the color of bauxite, I could be wrong. But anyway, from all the ships that have been sunk there over the course of a few days. Uh, so it's it's nothing new per se, but uh, we should especially look at situations like we have in, in, uh, in Europe right now. It's one thing if we have to send extra money to you know, Peru or Suriname or uh, Gambia to get uh, a mineral we need. It's another thing if we're having to rely on China or, or Russia or something like that. So, But it looks like people are going to get religion, but it's going to require a lot of firm executive oversight because it will be very easy for um, companies who are selling things to the military to get it the cheapest, easiest way, which may not be the best way to be able to sustain production uh, in a world at war. And eventually there will be another world war. We just don't know when it's going to be. Yeah, I thought another interesting part of this acquisition industrial base and supply chain security thing was, I don't know if you saw this, but it, it strengthens the national technology industrial base by making it coextensive with the Five Eyes Partnership. Did you see that? I missed that. Yeah, and enhances, and also it enhances the DOD's ability to use the authorities of the Defense Production Act. So, you know, those two things, I'm not quite sure what that means with the uh, national technology and industrial base, unless that means we can, we can use what England and Australia and New Zealand and, um, gosh, I forgot the other five. Um, Anyway, our allies have and make and claim that that's part of our own industrial base. That's kind of cool. But I don't know how far that goes either. Can we now produce ships in in Australia or in in, in Great Britain? That'd be that'd be nice. Yeah, it. There's pluses and minuses there. Uh, for instance, to be to be kind, New Zealand is not a reliable ally. Um, they have uh, a large percentage of their uh, political establishment that are at best neutral uh, to anti-American and a lot of their actions. Uh, they are very helpful and responsible in some areas. Um, I served with a couple of Kiwis in Afghanistan, uh, but uh, they weren't very helpful in many parts of the Cold War, which is why we didn't have ships come there for a long length of time because of their nuclear. And, and they're a sovereign nation. They're, they're allowed to be that. And uh, I read an article last week, you know, the New Zealand Navy, she has a great wartime history, but she, her ships are so poorly manned, a lot of them can't get underway uh, just because they don't have enough sailors. And you don't have sailors, and we have our own retention and recruitment issues here, but usually um, people don't want to join an organization that isn't valued and it doesn't pay well and it doesn't provide um, – a good quality of work and quality of life. And for whatever reason, uh, New Zealanders don't want to join her Navy, even worse than uh, some of the problems that we have. 
So, yeah, that that'd be nice to be able to to leverage people who really are our closest allies. But um, Canada is problematic in a variety of ways as well. The the UK is is really our our closest and most reliable ally, as is Australia. So, of of the five eyes, it's it's really three eyes and and two people that might be able to to blink a little bit. Uh, it seems a little harsh to our, to our friends, but it's just the round truth. Uh, the Australians well, and the Brits are, are are much better than the Canadians and the New Zealanders when it comes to national defense issues. Yeah, it's been one of the topics of discussion to expand the Five Eyes to include Japan, uh, which may not be a bad idea. And having been to New Zealand shortly after, we were one of the first U.S. Navy ships to go down there um, and visit, and it was a hassle. Their view of the world was that if they didn't have, and I think they probably saw on the beach or something, their view of the world was if we don't have any nukes down here and don't let any nukes come down here, nobody will nuke us if there's a, if there's a, a major war. And uh, so they were very sensitive about anything that um, could draw attention to them from a, a major uh, nuclear power. So uh, I understand their sensitivity, but... In the in the real world, they're kind of free riding again on on people who are willing to to uh, step up and and uh, engage what the, you know the things that that uh, could hurt, could hurt them and and it's a I think they had some pretty big deals with the Chinese. I'm not sure all that still exists, but uh, you know it's it's another one of those things where they they. They, they're going their own way. That's fine. I don't mind that. But they they need to they need sometimes they need to fish or cut bait if they're going to be part of an alliance. Yeah, it's it's. I think the the free riding term is uh, accurate to use for them, and it is unfortunate. Um, but it it is what it is. I I like you. I have um, I have a propensity to like further integration with the with the Japanese. Military because they are a frontline state. Uh, we they are. You know, you're, you're an old Westpac sailor. You've worked with, with J- the Japanese military. They're they're great professionals, um, and they are starting to increase their defense spending above one percent of GDP. They have a huge they have a a huge GDP though. So if they if they follow through with some of the rumblings about working towards that NATO two percent. Yeah, if that would be a doubling of defense spending by Japan, that would be in a close alliance. If Japan spent two percent of her GDP on defense, that would take a lot off of our plate in the Northern Pacific. Um, that that would just be a tremendous asset uh, in in a variety of ways. And the other, you could probably bring the South Koreans along with us. Uh, at least for the next decade or so, uh, second half of this century is going to be, if anybody's looked at the South Korean demographics, they're worse than the Japanese demographics, but that'll be a different challenge for uh, the second half of, of this century. But yeah, I, 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 would, I would like to see that, that closer interchange with the Japanese because they really are um, a natural ally. And a lot of our interests in the Pacific um, almost fully align 
and that that that's good to see. Well, they also are a long-term enemy of China, and for good reasons in many cases. Uh, you know that <laughs> they have no reason to to cozy up necessarily to the Chinese because the Chinese are, are not going to reciprocate that, except in the short term. The um, you know, when people are looking for talking points, and I, I know a lot of folks like to to, and which is this is a not a judgment call. It's just an observation. It's actually a a um, it's a feature, not a bug. People like to repeat the words that the, the SecNav uses in, in pretty big speeches. And he used early on in his speech something I want to hear a lot more people say in almost every every time they talk in front of the public. Um, quote. Our prosperity as a nation and our security are dependent upon unfettered access to the seas, unquote. I know that. You know that. Listeners of Midrats and, and, and Jack and, and Chris. Hey, Chris. <laughs> Chris, well, how you doing, bud? Um, and, you know, Stephen and the guys in the chat room, they know that. Uh, but a lot of the American public doesn't. And, you know, it's part of that sea blindness we talked about before. I, I think those... Um, in the maritime part of the national security uh, establishment, they need to say it. They need to say it till they're sick of saying it. Because the minute you're sick of saying something is when people actually start to hear you. And that was, I'm glad that that was early on in the speech. And he kind of echoed that a few other times during his speech. But that's the type of wording. And you, know, you can you can trace a line back to our friend Brian McGrath's last decade, his grand tour of the. Uh, uh, the Rotary Clubs of Greater Metropolitan uh, Eastern Maryland to um, to get that theme out there in the ears of more people, and I think people are more receptive to that too because in the general culture, the supply chain challenges during COVID that broke above the background noise and became part of daily conversation. So that that receptivity to this discussion and this point is still relatively fresh and open. It may close as other concerns get in there. So we should take advantage of that being, if not top of mind, it's just it's at least not a foreign concept for the civilians who, you know, ultimately we're all trying to uh, make a better future for. Yep. Well, so now that we've solved all these problems. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think last week we did mention to the listeners toward the end of the show that this week we were going to have a guest on about cyber. And uh, life is busy, and, and this guy lives overseas, and um, he has shifted to next week. So maybe next week we'll be able to dive more into cyber. And uh, in preparation to that, because you mentioned it earlier on the show, I'll give myself a homework assignment. There was some cyber stuff in the NDA that I I just I didn't spend much time. I just glanced over because I was interested in other things. But I'll dive into that and see bring that into part of the conversation because yeah we're getting now an, an assistant secretary of defense for cyber Yippee-ki-yay-yay. But um, that and I, I think sometimes it's overhyped. But uh, with everything with the drive for better or worse connecting everything. And satellite commu- communications, uh, more advanced coding on our weapons, especially those that are autonomous, uh, that's uh, a critical capability 
but is now a critical vulnerability. So having a, somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about cyber, not strictly in a military sense, uh, hopefully he'll be able to uh, to show up next weekend. I think that'll be a real interesting bid rep. Yeah, I'm always reminded last time I shopped for a refrigerator, and I couldn't believe that the refrigerators that uh, will link connect to the internet. I'm going, well, why? But you know, it just goes to show that so much of us in our daily lives we take for granted the availability of of, of the cyber networks and all that stuff. And it'd be pretty easy for someone to to uh, trip us off the line, just like uh, somebody tripped uh, has been tripping a number of our power plants around our power transformer stations and all that off the line here recently, like here in North Carolina and, and in some other states. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the uh, the electric wars in Ukraine uh, kind of came home. I, I I don't. It'll be interesting if or when they find out who they were doing that. It was just Bubba and Bocephus deciding to shoot something up. That'd be one thing, but it's not just isolated to North Carolina. I think that was just the incident that broke above the background noise. Uh, it could be one of those. It's what people hear somebody did it and they decide they want to do it. So it may be a totally unorganized social contagion of vandalism going on, but um, when you consider the Russians are dropping cruise missiles on the electrical infrastructure of Ukraine uh, and making the whole place go dark, and we're seeing a little bit of that here, you you can can play that out about, people like to use the word resiliency, Uh, how much of our power equipment do we build inside the Western Hemisphere? or even inside the U.S. and how's that supply chain? How do how do we recover from that? So that's also uh, maybe that that guy who has a, a new assignment for the strategic stockpile. Maybe he can have one of his hinder, interns look at that topic as well. Because I was thinking of that too. That uh, uh, one of my one of my neighbors works for uh, um, FPNL and uh, Florida Power and Light, which is the equivalent of Duke Power up where you are. And, uh, you know, we have hurricanes and tornadoes all the time here. And the electrical system is delicate enough as it is without people shooting at it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there were incidents in California a number of years ago. It's I know Washington State has seen some incidents. And, uh, you know, the, the scary thing is somebody's been, I saw somebody was trying to tie it to locations around military bases. But I don't know if that's, uh, you know, it's kind of like the... <laughs> Bermuda Triangle, yeah. Well, number sh- number of ships lost in Bermuda Triangle is, is serious, but then the number of ships transiting the Bermuda Triangle is also uh, fairly large. So <laughs> it it just it just depends on what you're looking at. Well, I think we have finally reached. Our, we're actually a couple minutes over for the hour. Um, as always, it's, it's been a pleasure, and thanks everybody who are joining us live, and of course those that get us on the podcast. And you stayed with us this long, that means you're a fan of MidRats. Uh, if you if you have an opportunity, please go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, give us a five star review. Don't give us a four star. Give us a five star review. That helps others that are looking for uh, national security topics, things about the Navy, things we talk about here and they're searching for a podcast that'll uh, get more people introduced to the program. And besides that, I guess we will talk to everybody uh, in a week. Yeah, everybody have a good, uh, have a good, have a good week. And uh, hope you all, if you're not going to join us next week, hope you have a Merry Christmas.
Absolutely. And uh, as always, hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. Bye.